May 2nd, 2020. It's a Waffle for Pedro show.
the sound of that good old rock and roll I'm white, that's right, but I still got a soul But when I hear that chunk of chunk of funky disco sound My mind goes blank, cause I don't look it down Put a bullet through the jukebox, blast it, blow it with a new Stand on the AM band of disco Makes me want to peel The number one kid's always standing there Black leather jacket, buzzing, butch, top hair He's cool He's a little not a big so don't hand him no job The next judge plays that jump Tell me this joint alive Put a bullet through the jukebox Show. Happy Saturday. Brother Matt, we're in quite uh, quarantino mode, so Brother Matt's still at the Love Grotto, sequestered. I'm here in my pad, but not totally man alone, because the genius software people in, well, you can hear them right now making a bunch of noise in Washington, D.C. My guest for this week, James June Scheider. Hey, James, welcome aboard. Pedro Show. Hey, it's an honor. Nice to be. Nice to be on. Maybe, uh, some music to play because well, we're going to get into this. But you made a very important documentary for your scene there that I'm very interested in. We start with John Coltrane doing "Joy," the second version, and then the Slicky Boys with "Bullet Through the Jukebox." I remember hearing about the Slicky Boys in uh, Cream Magazine a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, because that's, uh, that's right. Yeah, before fanzines, really, you know, before the movement and all that shit. But but let's go back with you in your journey as a as a film person. What's your earliest film recollection, James? Well, for for making films, it was pretty much uh, doing some Super 8 filming when I was a kid. But in terms of going to movies, no, ever since I was really little, it was... Also, watching all the family Super 8 films, so it was really part of part of my life. It wasn't just like uh, something I went to see in the big theaters. So it so really your, was your, a, your first movie mm-hmm. experience is actually Super 8s. Yeah, family Super 8, that okay. kind of thing. When okay. I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, maybe people don't know, but this is before video, and these didn't have sound, people. And and how long were they? Like 
three minutes, four or five minutes? Yeah, each reel is about three minutes. Three minutes. You know, right. it's it's only a couple millimeters wide, and uh, no, it's fantastic format. They're still making it today. Yeah. Well, in in a way, it, now it's Super Eight, right? Because there was an eight before that. That's right. Yeah. Well, people start started to go down from thirty five to. 16 there was even a nine millimeter nine and a half millimeter for a while with the james let me get this straight 35 but that wasn't for homes right that's like hollywood or something right right but the 16 millimeter once it got down to that size people were starting to do a lot of you know travel footage and even some home movies for people that had a little more money but um, no, Super 8 was really the first home movie format. Right, where people could have small cameras, small projectors. Yeah, affordable. The, the first widespread one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. And uh, so, well, who was it? Was it your pop? Um, yeah, I think it was mostly my dad who, who, had, who had the cameras. But, uh, you know, we didn't have a whole lot that was shot but I, I i did have fond memories of it and i still have the reels of you know some of these family films uh that i that i've watched again and again but uh it wasn't it wasn't really till i started taking a lot of photos in high school and then started animating my photos started making flip books with my photos started videotaping my photos and i was like i shouldn't be making photos anymore i just kind of slowly edged into making movies okay then, so when you I was, didn't really <laughs> Even though your pop was making some Super 8s of the family and shit, more like documentaries kind of thing, you weren't really experimenting with it yet. You actually Not started too much, with, uh, no. with stills no, it, and started animating mm -hmm. stills. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, since, since I was really little, I mean, I remember even in elementary school using pinhole cameras and stuff. So uh, I, I've always been into, you know, but it started with photos and then gradually moved into moving images. Can I, can so. I make a parallel? And all the skate videos, not to forget, in high school. Can I make a make. parallel? Sure. Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> no, didn't he start taking pictures for life or, or look or something? Yeah, magazine? that's right. And then, and then film came later. That's right. Yeah, there's been a lot of photographers uh, that, that moved into film and back and forth again. And so. it was why he was very, uh, even when he was a director and stuff, he still was a hands-on cameraman, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And he, but he's not the only one. I mean, this. No, I know about him a little bit because uh, my Miss American guitarist Tom Watson, big Stanley Kubrick. I know he only made thirteen films. Because it's so small, though, I could watch all of them, so I know a little bit about him. <laughs> yeah, I'm all for for less films and better films. Yeah, yeah. well, he would take so. a long time, right? Even before he started filming, he'd do a lot of research and shit. Yeah, and that's. That's the way it should be. I mean, people giving us a hard time for how long it took us to make our movie, but yeah, I'm really happy how it turned out, and I think we got it right. So, but know. what about the sitch like somebody like Orson Welles, where he he's I'm from theater, I know nothing about it. I'm going to let this camera guy, right? He, he used to, <laughs> yeah, old, well, he tiny, was uh, Hollywood guy to get all those incredible shots, right? But in a way, by him not knowing the rules, he could put that expert cameraman in situations that made it kind of creative, right? Exactly. Yeah, a lot of people that come from other, uh, you know, all kinds of other uh, careers have come into filmmaking, even pretty late on. Like Brisson in France didn't start making films till he was in his 40s. Uh, 
um, people like Jean Rouche, and also in France, but he was a engineer and also was blowing up bridges in the Second World War. He was in the Resistance. He didn't start making movies till he was older. So, a lot of great filmmakers I love didn't start till till they were much older and they had some experience they could bring to the table. I, I mean, Same this thing with is Orson a painter, Wells. man, but you know, Vincent only painted the last ten years of his life. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Mr. Wells, the last work he got was for the some kind of two-buck chuck screw on cap shit up. But he said, no wine before it's time. So, you know. Mm-hmm. So, James, when did you make your first film? By 1992. Yeah, I made a film about um, Euro Disney, actually. I was over there for some photo workshop that I was working on, and Ran into some friends that from D.C. One, one of them was this guy who he goes by the name DJ Spooky now, but he was over there and uh, he helped me out. And another number of other friends were there, and we just shot this short film, like a eight minute film, the year Euro Disney opened up. Over there, they were calling it the Cultural Chernobyl. So I snuck in and just shot a bunch of sixteen millimeter film with a Bolex and collected a whole bunch of sound and made sort of a collage. Okay, so so would you call it a documentary or more like an art film? Yeah, like an experimental documentary, yeah. Okay. Hmm. Here's the thing I've always, you know, I don't know a lot, like I already told you, but it seems like there's a lot of money involved with this kind of creation. Now, you must have, you're starting off, so you made this pretty econo? Yeah, no, well, a lot of times early on, you know, you could get what they called short ends, which is like leftover 16 millimeter from the big productions. You know, TV was still being shot, a lot of it on 16 millimeter. So you could get these short ends that you could shoot, you know, just basically these leftover, sometimes half rolls of film and stuff. So I would get a lot of that and try to keep it real tight. I mean, my shooting ratio was really low. I wouldn't. I, you know, it wasn't like uh, like a lot of documentaries. Somebody like Wiseman, he'll shoot just hundreds of hours and uh, and whittle it down to whatever two hour movie. But you know, um, who I heard was really bad with this. Maybe he's not documentary, but uh, Billy Friedkin. Mm. I heard he, he shot miles of shit that ended up on the floor. <laughs> yeah, it's you know Kubrick. You brought him up earlier too. Yeah. There's somebody who do so many takes every time. You drive people nuts well, until like he wore a, them down. A, a Shelley yeah. Duvall with the baseball bat. I think 148, maybe. <gasps> God, it is a great scene. So <laughs> it was worth it. <laughs> you know, you gave me a bunch of music, and it's really good. Thank you so much, James. Uh, this is Teen Idols, which is Ian, and I think. When they came over here, Henry was the roadie. He carried the bass, right? They had like one instrument. And, uh, yeah, yeah that's quite a haul. Yeah. <laughs> Like this. 
It was the afternoon, not even a full moon. I was headed to a building with a dustpan and a broom. Just about to get started with the rest of my rota, I felt my attention drawn to a near-parked-up motor. As a young dude stooped down on the deck, he looked a little suspect, so I did a double-check. He was on all fours, foaming at the jaw. He seemed to have symptoms that you couldn't ignore. He was a werewolf. He was still at first. Next thing I'd seen, he started bounding like a doggy right across the green. He wasn't covered in hair like in the movies I saw. He had no fangs, nor did he have claws. But he bounded on his hands and feet supernaturally. He was changing directions most erratically. He chased a bunch of kids about his own age. They had to climb up a wall to get away from his rage. Then, as soon as he appeared, he decided to go. From where he really came, I never got to know. He turned around and bounded off into the woods. The terror was over in the neighborhood. The whole time he was silent, not even a growl. But he got into the woods 
and he began to howl. Was he a junkie off his head? Did he have a condition and forget his meds? According to the roadman from the block, he worshipped Satan in the woods and then would run amok. He was a werewolf.
excess love handles are you so fat that you can't fall down when you step on the scale does it say one at a time please if this sounds like you you need the nation's hottest new workout video sensation skank aerobics that's right shed those pounds away with the high energy workout everyone's talking about before skank aerobics whenever i took a shower i had to use a blanket for a washcloth with a chamois on a broom handle to reach the tough spots and now i'm so skinny my nipples touch Thanks, Skeletones. My doctor diagnosed me as morbidly obese, and every time I grabbed the saddles, the horses all started running. My wife said I smelled like moldy butter and dumpster juice in an old coffee can, and I got tired of carrying a gym bag full of baby powder to keep my wet spots at bay. But ever since Skank Aerobics, the chafing is gone, and shoot, I'm even breaking out the old spandex from my glam rock days. Thanks, Skeletons. Skank Aerobics. It's so simple, anyone can do it. And we'll start you off easy in Phase 1 with One Drop and Rock Steady. Phase 2 will get you into the skanking sounds of Two-Tone. And in Phase 3, you'll melt those pounds away to the rocking sounds of the Skeletons. So ladies, trade those boss hogs in for some Daisy Dukes with the rudest new video workout sensation, Skank Aerobics. Available now. Skeleton makes good. There's so many things to feel and see while you're awake. They're just out of reach, out of grasp. Yeah, out of reach. And just as many, maybe more, the minute that you sleep. 
So I got to throw my preach. Skeleton breath, scorpion blush. I have a crush on your skeleton. Watch out, unsuspecting stranger. You'll fall off the log. Head first into dreams. End up screaming. This will comb the wolf. And that will comb the fog. What will peen the rain? What will preen the hog? Oh, you mean earth and hell over you and laugh at your tire tracks if you get up, skeleton makes good. Show yeah, Tina was with Deadhead. The Veil after that. You know, he was in Blue Cheer before they were a power trio. Uh, I'm dreaming. Werewolf from uh got some buzz on your end there. Uh oh. There, it's Here. gone now. It's gone now. Bad ground. John Apples and Levil J. Calcutt. Werewolf, yeah. Black Moon Tape, Doctor Part Two, Psycho. Islands. Psych is a band. These cats were right out of high school, 70, 71, Chicago. They, they, they play one gig and press up 50 records. That's it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. it was Put a fork in it. Guided by Voices After That Physician. Mr. Bob Pollard working on album 109, I think. <laughs> this guy. Talk about prolific. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Skeletones after that with skanker robux. 
Skelter Makes Good, a poem by Cap Beefheart. And finally, another tune that you gave me, something I never heard before, Red Bone in the City, Bad Brains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I know Bad Brains a big part of the DCC. Oh, yeah. Of course, all I mean, these that's... guys here. And, and in fact, we should... Okay, what led up to this movie here? Tell us about it. Mm. Well, uh, D.C. is my hometown, so that's a good place to start. Yep. Uh, I grew up in the skate and punk scenes here. And, I mean, really, it was, it was like a second family to me, you know, growing up. We'd have the Christmas show and stuff like that. That's what I – that's the kind of thing I'd look forward to around Christmas time, for example. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where it was really the soundtrack of, of my youth, you know, D.C. music. Uh, also, it was really – like um how do i put it it was always like uh local for me dc music i didn't know that it wasn't like that elsewhere like that that was what i listened to was dc music and Can i ask you something about dc yeah. music mm-hmm. because it was small scene probably if i can relate to it to you know going up to hollywood to see gigs in the 70s yeah how did you find out about it well, DC is pretty small, like the at the time, at least the kind of white kid part of town, at least you know, which I grew up in. Uh, it was pretty segregated; it still is. Um, and at the time, what what would happen was the skate scene was really mixed in with the punk scene. So, I, and I was a skater, and so you'd always see the flyers up around town. There wasn't a lot of radio going on. You know, in the '80s, it was pretty pretty dead on that front. So it was pretty much flyers, fanzines, and then you only had a couple places that were yeah, doing I was shows. Yeah, I'm going to ask you, what were the venues, James? Well, by that time, you had the Wilson Center, which I believe you might know about, and we had uh, DC Space, and of course the old 930 Club. That's where I mainly mm. played. I played DC Space once because of big snowstorm. Mm. Oh, but we're talking the F Street one. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, there was D.C. Space, which was on E Street, just like a couple blocks away from 930 Club on right. F Street. And then you had a couple odd places in the burbs, but D.C. also had often high school shows, that kind of thing, which was quite strange. I remember yeah. uh, people like Joe Keithley would say, you know, he just, you know, another weird thing about D.C., you know, show, <laughs> you know, shows at uh, Valentine's Day shows and people's you know, high school, high school gyms. And you know stuff. what I heard Not, about high school yeah. gig? Yeah. You know, I helped the Stooges for 125 months. Oh and, shit! And, they told, and the Ashton brothers told me mm-hmm. that Bobby Dylan played their high school in Ann Arbor. Mm. And like they set up a bunch of fucking chairs and, and Mr. Dylan was not happy with that because he's sitting up there with all these people. So yeah, the the idea of a of a gig at a high school seems kind of trippy to me too. Well, we got the one here. The I don't know if you heard about Jeff Krulik's film. He made um, Heavy Metal Parking Lot, but he made a whole film about whether Led Zeppelin did or didn't play in this high school gym right before they became famous, just outside of D.C. You should see it if you haven't seen it. It's a great yeah. movie. But you know, I think I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. I thought it was more about the mullet culture or something. 
<laughs> no, but it does talk about Iggy uh, smearing peanut butter all over himself at that show at another gig at that same. Well, the peanut high butter school. show is just the the famous Cincinnati uh, festival you know, with the dog collar and actually he's riding the people. He's like mm. standing on. Them. Yeah, he's like surfing them somehow. And uh, so, good so, lord. So what you're saying is the big connect with skating. Yeah, I'd say so. But the music really spoke to me. And for me, like I was saying earlier, it, it was always local. Like there was enough good music here in town that that's most most of what I was following was was local music. I mean, there was just so many good bands uh, around that time. Because you're so every weekend, the age you, where you didn't hmm? do the arena rock, right? I wasn't doing it. No. I mean, I yeah, went to one or James, two, but sort of by accident. <laughs> James, you got to understand. There was a period... Well, you didn't have a choice because you didn't. <laughs> club thing kind of died, and arena rock took over, especially early seventies. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, see, I didn't start going to shows until, I mean, uh, my earliest DC shows were really around the mid eighties. Yeah, say. yeah. So me and so. Dee Boone, our first gig is T Rex. You know, we turned thirteen when we were seventy. So even though it's not that many years, in the older days, it seems things changed a lot quicker. Yeah, it's right? true. It's true. And then Things there was, change. Like we didn't. Now you know, like I told you, I, I, I served a shift with helping the Stooges guys. So I know in the '60s, from those guys, there was a lot of club action, a lot of garage bands, a lot of little local scenes. But that got steamrolled by the arena rock, uh, whatever uh, endeavor. <laughs> I don't want to really call it a movement because it's just totally from the top down you know but it did seem to work uh some bands like you mentioned led zeppelin and they became very successful there but you know for a guy playing with his friend it wasn't that attractive this other scene for us when we saw these guys like the germs man why don't we start a band so I think we're right. probably coming from that kind of thing too, but not having to have the stupid arena rock as your like primary fertilizer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it was totally alienating to me. But those were not my first shows. My first concerts were were DC punk concerts. So that's why I'm saying. That's why I'm saying. Yeah, you, you you have that background. So in a way, you're you're a little more less dirty. <laughs> less tainted. Deep no. would say you have less taint. You know, it ain't that well, taint. <laughs> but, I didn't get I didn't get saved by punk. I mean, punk was already there. Yeah, that's so what I'm was, saying. It was your it yeah. was your rock and roll, and and that's really kind of fucking happening. Of course, it's all circumstance. Nobody picks when they come into it. But I think it was important enough to you that you thought it should be documented. Oh yeah. Well, I'd done this film with another DC band called The Makeup. In 1996. Mm -hmm. No, Ian. Ian. No, yeah, Ivan. Ian Savonius. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He interviewed me for a soft focus thing. Right. Yeah. Good guy. Yeah, he's smart great. man. Smart man. Oh, yeah. And so the makeup, yeah, we did that film in 1996. And then what happened was I started uh, getting to know my friend Paul's films better and better. Uh, and he had done a whole lot of Super 8 filming back in the late. 79 81 82 here in dc mostly some feature films that he's made with his friends but he always had bands in the you know in the movies so basically his films were sort of these uh, 
films made with friends, but with a lot of local bands. And I started seeing more and more of his stuff. And I was like, oh, you got a lot of great footage here. And I was like, nobody has done a film about the DC punk scene. So we got to talking. This was around the turn of the century. We got to talking and decided we sh- nobody's done this movie. We should do it. Um, so I kind of fell into it like that. You know, big fan of the music, grew up here. And, um, you know, a friend of mine has shot all this footage. So Yeah, was, but it's, it's Paul's. Because I, I was wondering, were, were you going to gigs with cameras? No, this is Paul's stuff, right? No, no. And, in fact, the whole the whole film, we cast a really wide net at first because no one had done the film yet. So we, we were collecting stuff up to, you know, 86, 87, Fugazi era even. And um, then some other films came along, which is probably a good thing. So we were able to really trim it down and concentrate on the, the early years. So I would say most of our film is 1979, really, which was basically the year punk broke here. Okay. Uh, that's, when it, that's when it really took off. Uh, and that's when he shot most of his Super 8 footage. Now, it had no sound, right? Uh, yeah, it did have sound. Okay. It's got okay. this, okay. I don't know what it is, like a quarter millimeter thin <laughs> stripe of mag tape. So the quality is pretty rough, but it does... It does have a sound stripe on some of it. Not all of it, but he had several different cameras. He'd hand them out to friends. Yeah, because yeah. some of them Super 8 cameras, I remember, actually, you winded them. They weren't electric. You wound them up, right? That's right, but I think the ones he was using, these were all these were all battery-powered. Okay, okay. Uh, and, but he, he documented, you know, he was kind of the bad brains uh film filmographer you know he he would go with them to new york on their first gig and really shot just tons of early footage about with them so anytime you see early super 8 footage of the bad brains except for some of that new york stuff it's all it's all paul's footage so thank you paul look we're at the end of the first hour may 2 2020 edition wap pedo show james u shire special guest hold tight for hour two May 2, 2020. It's the second hour of the Live for Pedro show.
We're coming down 
Pedro show done second hour off with Chumps down on the mall. Bread and Enter Ensemble after that, number 20, Aphex Twin. I named it after a DJ. Timothy Erie sold my sunshine, San Ardo, Children of the Plain. Can't afford the basics, live on Kicks and Eat from the Zigzags. Young Creatures, Prisoner Escape, and finally, World at War from the Black market baby. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's in your mind? You got all this uh, material from Paul from the day. Mm-hmm. Like he went to the well, right? First hand, not second, third, fourth hand. He went straight to the well. These are his buddies. He's not even thinking yep. of posterity when he's doing this. Mm-hmm. So you got, but you got a great resource here. But, but do, what are you thinking in mind? I got to come up with a script that kind of has to tell the whole story. No, that would have been the efficient way of doing it. Uh, no, <laughs> I definitely. Do it, James? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you get you get these shows on HBO or wherever, and they they'll write everything out in a script. They'll go get whatever they need to kind of fill in their story, how they see it before they write it. But we went out and shot exhaustive interviews, and you know, tried to make a story that reflected what people were saying so it was in some ways trying to redo or take from the horse's mouth you know this was going to be a direct story from the people that were building the scene so we didn't uh, apply any sort of preconceived notion we really tried to clear out any anything we'd read or known or heard about the scene and just really talk with people um and so we did like two to three hour interviews with most people. I think a few or four hours. But uh, these were also meant to be documents of people that had participated in the scene. So now we have these long interviews for that was for posterity, though. Um, but, you know, then we had to whittle the stuff down and we kind of let it write itself, which was a really long process over 100 interviews, probably. 350, 400 hours of interviews. Um, our first cut was seven hours long. And yeah, we basically just kept whittling it down until we got to what was more of a story uh, than a band by band kind of scene movie. Well, here's uh, what I'm thinking. You got this, you started off with this stuff Paul had, right? Mm-hmm. Did, you probably wanted to go back and find these guys, right? That are That's in 1979 and... Yeah, it wasn't so hard to to find people. I mean, these are all um, very approachable people. We regretted that not everything made it in there, of course. Um, well, seven hours. A lot of, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, well. Down from I mean, 100 hours. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, these are favorite. A lot of these bands that aren't, even, that aren't necessarily in it are bands that I actually deeply love. But sure. our our goal became really to write a story. So we focused on we wound up really concentrating on three bands slicky boys bad brains and well, teen idol minor threat let's say kind of that trajectory um just because we could keep coming back to those bands and they kind of showed how the scene had evolved very fast over 
you know, a six six year period uh, by following their trajectories. Of course, Slicky Boys just kept on going, uh, but the definition of punk changed, so they weren't really, you know, doing what they were, and they were still doing what they were in seventy six, seventy seven, with a little more pop to it. And um, but punk had changed, uh, so that was really interesting. And then, of course, the Bad Brains, you know, set the bar, but then they moved on to New York. That'd be an interesting alternate history to see what DC Punk would have been like if they'd stuck around, but and the Bad Brains too. But um, and you know, obviously, Teen Idols and Discord and Minor Threat, following that whole that that whole uh, legendary story up through the years. But the idea was to learn something ourselves, apart from what we knew already too, which meant that people from this scene will hopefully learn about themselves and their the history of their own community, which has has proved itself to have worked pretty well. So people from the scene seem to like it pretty good. They're bringing their, their moms out and their kids out to to finally get what it was about, that kind of thing. So Okay, speaking of band from old days, I kind of know of this one a little bit because I know Howard, the nurses. Oh, yeah.
crushed by a pig, ladies and gentlemen. How about that? What a fucking sound, eh? Come on, let's give a big hand.
Off from Pedro's show, yeah, hearts from the nurses. Now, the nurses weren't playing by the time you were going to gigs, right? No, no. And um, I guess Howard had probably left town by then. Um, I'm not sure when he left D.C., but uh, that was Howard's role in the scene was something I completely discovered doing this film. Um, him and some other people, uh, while I, I'd known the names, I'd known the nurses, I'd heard the nurses, especially from the early compilations that Skip Groff had put out. Uh, from yesterday and today, the limp compilations. But I had no idea that people like that had, uh, well, I knew that Skip was really supportive of the scene. And then people like Howard and Kim, just getting to know Kim Kane from Slicky Boys, sure. just learn, learning how these generations had kind of helped each other out. You didn't get really the backstabbing or the, you know, the kind of, I don't know, competitiveness that you did in a lot of other scenes all the older generation like skip groff and kim kane and howard wolfing they were really about helping out the younger kids make it happen and i think that kind of camaraderie really gave a great backdrop to what would come later with the the younger generation the discord generation if you want to call it that and why, and why do you think that happened because dc was such a small scene maybe it was a small scene, and I think the D.C. area, just given its government backdrop and kind of just the way the population uh, had evolved here, it really was sort of um, hmm, fairly serious, you know, very serious scene in terms of, you know, come, people coming from academic backgrounds, their parents were journalists and things like that. So I think people took their craft seriously, just like their parents took their a lot of their jobs seriously. Um, you know, like one person's parent was mapping out possible nuclear attacks on the country. And, you know, <laughs> another parent is, you know, a journalist. Another is a, you know, uh, you know, there was some working class too here, but a lot of it was middle class and a lot of academic background. Uh, and people that moved to DC, like Skip, uh, Groff, uh, people like that who were here, they were they were kind of like these very rarefied people that were doing it because of the love of it. They weren't part of some bigger scene necessarily. They were there was sort of this um, this feeling of uh duty in a way you know people people had to fill in these things that weren't happening in dc you know there was no one else like skip groff back then doing yesterday into today records there was no one else like uh wgtb the georgetown radio station we had here at the time and that closed in 1979 these were all sort of these these uh not pioneers i'd say necessarily but these were sort of these these people that were islands and they were really able to cultivate their own their own way of seeing and thinking about things that was pretty unique yeah yeah i mean we had but we had several patches of it here but they were all tiny little things mm -hmm. uh, i tell you every tour i did i had a dc gig and it was always strong so i've mm. always been very grateful to what got built there and very consistent. I should say, after the nurses, we heard uh, uh, Yashmak uh, scribes decline from Senor, Senor Al, Vetaloon crushed by pimps, 
Origins, Imad Wasif, it's dark outside, it's all happening. And then here's a DC band I never heard of, Ozone Music with Magic Moment. Mm-hmm. That's Rupert. Ozone, Ozone Music? Yeah, Rupert Chappelle. Okay. So he's he was a Thanks part for of this. Thanks yeah, Sure. <laughs> you, my pleasure. Really? You know, because that's what it was about in the old days. Remember, you'd make cassette tapes with all your tunes on it and shit, and then infect the next person. <laughs> yeah, well, I, he's he's one of those that that people still bring up when they want to talk about how how diverse the scene was back then. You know, you'd have bands like Half Japanese and stuff, sure. too, that were on the scene. Fair Brothers. And then, yeah, and you'd have uh, Rupert. Chappelle there playing in the basement while the Bad Brains were playing upstairs sometimes. I don't know how that would work. I was not there. But uh, I've heard stories of him playing in chainmail. down. Great. Yeah, he, he was... <laughs> we're at the end of the second hour, May 2, 2020, Dishwap Peter Show. Special guest, James June Schneider. Hold tight for hour three. May 2, 2020. It's the third hour of the Watt for Pedro Show.
Mark for Pedro Show. Start off third hour with uh, True Facts in the Insaniacs. Now, this is another new one for me, too. Hit me to this, James. Washington well, true. Yeah, Washington. Uh, they're, they're truly a, a, a key DC band. Uh, Diana Quinn, the singer, great voice. She's kind of like Chrissy Hind voice. She's great guitarist. Uh, she can play solo as much as she can play an electric guitar. Uh, they were back in the day, they were helping out as well, all the younger generations, getting the untouchables to open up for them, uh, even getting them to sneak in the, sneak in the windows cause they were underage to play their own gigs. Uh, so no, she, she's, she's great. Uh, Diana Quinn, the singer and great band back then. They were, you know, mainstays on the scene and they were pretty tight with the nurses and half Japanese, uh, yeah, they were they were really a key part of the scene back then. They continued playing up on into the eighties and nineties, and still still releasing some stuff. Um, but uh, you know, right? Officially, I guess they never broke up. Tripod Jimmy. After that's got Tom Herman. I had him on the last show. Big hero to me and D Boone. Spike the Dyke. This was a band he had with uh, Lenny in the eighties. And then Africa Corps. Now, you know, we had an Africa Corps in SoCal. They turned into a Savage Republic, a two called mm. Buzz Stomp. What was your Africa Corps? <laughs> well, um, this is an interesting group, and you could get a lot more talking with Howard about the genesis of the group, but it was kind of a super group. Um, and you had, you had Howard in there. Uh, you had... Uh, Ooh, Patricia Reagan. I mean, these guys were. This was a. It was Martha Hall from the Slicky Boys, uh, Patricia Reagan from the Look, uh, Kim Kane from the Slicky Boys, with uh, who else? Ah, I mean, if you if you look back at what they were doing, though, it was kind of this. It flirted with some kind of uh, uh, what do you want to call it? Militaristic themes. You know, it's <laughs> it doesn't age so well some of the songs, but it's really adventurous sounds and and it was like a DC super group back then. Okay. Check it out. I, I yeah. want, you gave me this a band, White Boy. White Boy, yeah. I want to play so the song this- uh, Little Idiots. <laughs> Thank you. 
Pop for Pedro show. Yeah. Off air, uh, James has hit me to this this white band, a uh, white boy band called Little Idiots. Mm. Now, these guys had their own label, people, in the 70s. Yeah, Doodly Squat. Doodly Squat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I just think uh, this is really important stuff you're doing, James, because I think when people think, and nothing wrong with it because I love Discord Ian, but I think that's all they know. Mm-hmm. And so I think for for your own scene, you, you were filling in gaps. But I think for us, too, that aren't from there. Then we heard uh, LSU Project Room 2011, Nels Klein, Alan Licht, and William Hooker doing a big piece. And then finally, the Penetrators, the break. There was a Penetrators in San Diego. They were kind of like ro- old Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not like yours. No. George Dively, singer, uh, great, great front guy. Uh, I loved him, uh, but I never got to see them in person. There's not a lot of footage uh, of them, but they, uh, you know, back then they, they were on the scene. They were super important. They were playing places like the original Madam's Organ and a lot of other clubs. Um, yeah. Madam Zorba. Madam's Organ. Zorgan. That was a club. So, yeah, Madam's Organ was a art collective, art co-op okay. that started in the early 70s, founded by some uh, women artists, started as sort of a, a women's art collective, and then slowly got taken over by uh, the Yippies. And before you knew it, uh, punk came in. Okay. And basically, that's that became DC's punk hangout for, for about eight or nine months. Where, 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 where was it uh, ge- geographically compared to the 930? So, yeah, it was a little further up uptown. It wasn't downtown D.C. It was in this neighborhood that's called Madam's Organ. I mean, it's called Adam's Morgan. Sorry. <laughs> so that's the that's the joke. Yeah, I get it. The pun. Spoonerism. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, there's a new place that took the name. It's like a blues bar. They're, they're using the same name, but shouldn't be confused with the old one that was down the street. Um, so Bad Brains actually lived there for a while, and uh, there were shows all the time. It was a super formative place for bands like, uh, you know, people like Henry Rollins, you know, sure. Ian and all them. They were hanging out. Ian and Alec Mackay. Well, it's the first all- time. It's the first time I've heard of it. So, and, and you got it in the film, right? Yeah. Yeah, we don't have footage of one of the first shows there, which was DOA. Uh, Joey. Yeah, DOA played there in like maybe maybe it's October or November 1979. I try to uh, tell people they were one of the first bands really torn around oh, way, yeah. be, way before Black Flag even. Oh, yeah. And frankly, that was one of the interviews that that just blew me away. I didn't know all the background with DOA and how tied in they were with all kinds of different movements and just an amazing Joe Keithley's amazing. Yeah, um, he, he's yeah, a, I mean, it's a warrior. I've always, yeah. I've always dug. I think he's on a on a city council now in Vancouver or something. I knew he was running for office. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how that. Well, I, out. I know he's won and he's ran and lost, but I think he he won one. I think he's in now. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's and, and I always love to sing in in his songs too. And the, who are the two guys? Randy Rampage and Chuck Biscuit. Chuck Biscuit. Yeah. That's right. What? Uh, James, what's next for you? Well, uh, 
believe it or not, this this film is still out there on the road. So there's well, we where can a, people find out about it on the internet? Well, we do have a website. Uh, Give them the URL. Doc dot info and Facebook page and all that stuff. But uh, we had no, we what, had like what, four what's dates. What's the website, uh, what, James? Uh, spell out the website so people can go there. So it's DC Punk Rock Doc. So D C P U N K R O C K D O C. Yeah. Dot com. See, that's dot info. Dot info. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's. So, what, I wanted it out there so people can go check this out. And then, yeah, it's probably up on all the other telephone poles too. You got flyers, but that's the main home base, right? That's right. And, that's, and, that's... And, 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 and yeah, I understand it's current and it's out there, so everybody, please check it out. I want to go see it. But, yeah, we're going to be hitting the road still a little bit more, and then next year it'll it'll be out for wide release and much more easily. Sure, received, we got a little postponement uh, mode. A right little now. postponement yeah, because little postponement. of the current situation. <laughs> All right, right. Yeah, but, but, but uh, do, do, are you got any plan after that, Jake? Well, I, I'm working on another film about a film collective from the 1960s group of filmmakers called the Newsreel. So they were pretty much documenting the countercultural movements of the time, circa 1968, where? They were all over the U.S. Oh, it, was okay. a de- it was a decentralized collective, started in New York. Another major branch was San Francisco. But there, there were a hundred, hundred or so active members, if you will, and they made maybe 60, 80 films in three years about the countercultural movements of the day. So I've been working on that with the co-director, Evora Cusack, she's over in France. I'm and, curious, uh, James. Yeah. Do, do you consider them an influence? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, especially these these people were gave themselves gave their lives over to their film work because they thought it would change, if not the world, it would it would change the world they were living in at the time or the situation they were living in at the time. The Vietnam War was raging on. Sure, civil but rights. Also, yeah, uh, free but they were movement. not working. There was a lot of stuff. I, I was, a, I was only a boy, but I was in the '60s. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, the crazy times. I, I can't even imagine uh, what what these people lived through. Uh, and they're all they're all the ones that I know are still active today in one way or another. Back then, a lot of people, at least the ones in this next project that we've been talking to, they really weren't doing it for any kind of self promotion. One thing that's been really inspiring is that there wasn't that they, they really wanted to be anonymous in this particular group. The idea was that they were serving a cause bigger than themselves, and I think that's kind of something we've lost. So yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. That's a that, bitch and noble thing to do. Yeah, but you know things yeah. come in cycles, so maybe and you can be a part of helping that come back along, James. <laughs> we'll see. Just, it's been a big just, honor to have you on the show. Thanks. When you get oh, this film it's my made, honor. James, when you get this film made, will you come back on the show and we can talk about it? Oh yeah, I'd love to. I'd okay. love to. This has been this has been awesome. Okay. Thanks for being on Truly. People, it's May 2nd, Miss May Day by One Day, 2020 edition Waff Pedo Show. Keep your powder dry.